Timothy at Ephesus. And we come to this this morning. This is 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 3 through 7. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Let us pray. Father, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts this morning would be pleasing in your sight. We pray that you'd be glorified and that you would work your spirit in us to obey and to love your word more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we have a couple of things going on in this text that we're going to address this morning. And this is going to be a little bit more of a technical sermon than I normally preach. Um, there's two, two places in this text that seem to indicate a universal salvation of God, of all men, everywhere. Uh, so th- this is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then verse 6, Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. There are three basic understandings of how to read these texts. Um, The first is probably the most popular in the United States and in the West, and it is that when Jesus died on the cross, this is this view, his atonement atoned for all the sins of all the people in all the world at all times, and that our duty is to respond and receive that gift. That is Arminianism, that is Wesleyanism, that is most of evangelicalism today. Um, The second view um, is that There are, we speak of it in, in two ways, basically, and there is some debate of whether or not we should say it exactly like this, but it is the two-willed view of this text. And that is there is a secret will of God, which we all know exists. There are things that are not for us that we do not know that God does, and he has his purposes and plans. And then there is the revealed will, or the things that we do know, um, And this partially answers the question of what to do with texts like this uh, in saying that we know that, um, to give you a few examples of these sorts of texts, in um, the book of 1 Samuel it says, God is not, or the book of 1 Samuel, uh, yeah, God is not like a man that he should repent Seems very evident, self-evident. That's true. God is not like a man that he should repent. He does not change his mind. And then about 10 or 12 verses later, it says in the text, and God repented. There are other places in Scripture like this. Um, When the flood comes to Noah and his people, it says in Genesis, and God was sorry 
that he had made man. This is, without a doubt, one of the most difficult problems to overcome in Scripture and in our thinking. Uh, How does this square with the truth about God, that he doesn't change, and yet he was sorry? And we talked about this, oh, probably two months ago in Sunday school, something like that, that this is a divine mystery, and we have lots of divine mysteries in our faith. Let me just walk you through a few that you, you probably don't think about in this way very often because it's such just a normal part of Christianity. But think of something like the Trinity. God is one God in three persons. Now we can think about it and we can try to explain that, but we have no true analogy for it. And whenever you run into an analogy that tries to explain the Trinity, just know this, it's teaching something bad about the Trinity. The Trinity is unique. God is utterly unique. His nature, how he is as three persons in one God, is unlike anything else in the world. Because everything else was made by him. And so even though we bear some resemblance to what we can think of as the Trinity, we are not anything like the God who is three in one. And so that's a high mystery, right? This, this stuff has been debated uh, for the first 500 years of Christianity to try and rub this out and get this right and, and figure out what Scripture actually taught. Other things related to the Trinity... How Christ, Jesus the man, could be both fully human and fully divine. Neither dividing the substance or dividing the man. Okay? So he's not part God and part man. And he's not two things in in two bodies. And he's not one body with half of this and half of that. He is fully God, he is fully man, and he has one body. That is strange and difficult to understand. And there's a reason why we have fought over it for the first 500 years of the church. We don't get it. And even though I think we have defined it very well in things like the Chalcedonian Creed, it's mostly a, 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 a declaration of negations. Christ is not this, but he is that. Uh, but how he's that, we don't know. We don't know the why. We don't know the how. We don't get how it all fits together. We just know it's true. You can keep going. The virgin birth. How did that happen? We all know in the scientific age how birth happens. They knew in the unscientific age how birth happened. And it requires two people. (laughs) Right? This is basic understanding of human life. And yet, there were not two people. There was one woman. And the Holy Spirit came upon her, and nine months later, Jesus was born. Right? 
That's a mystery. We don't know how it happens. You can continue on down the line and you get to the actual crux of our faith. Jesus Christ died. Was really dead. Didn't kind of die. Didn't just slow down his breathing. But really, actually, physically died. Brain waves. Beep. Heart. Beep. Dead. Really dead. Three days. No longer dead. Would you care to explain that? We can't explain that. These are the mysteries of the faith, and they are foundational to the Christian faith. Everything about the Christian faith must be received on faith, by faith. Right? This is the whole deal. This is why um, the gospel is such a weird thing to people. This is 1 Corinthians, Paul talking. None of the rulers of this age understood this, the gospel. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of the glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us, Through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches things, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words... Not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. What is Paul saying here? He's saying that the the Christian faith cannot be, finally, a logical decision. It is imparted to us by the Spirit. The Christian faith, part and parcel, the whole thing, the Trinity, how Christ was God and man, the virgin birth, the death and resurrection of Christ, all of it, that is folly to the Gentiles, a stumbling block to the Jews. We did not arrive at faith by being logical people who came to right conclusions. We became Christians because the Spirit opened our eyes. And that too is a mystery. How does that happen? What is the new birth? Right? In John 3, right, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, here's what he says to Nicodemus. Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Right? Completely logical, right? Obviously, you're from God. You're doing unbelievable things. And Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So he says to Nicodemus, 
you're trying to be logical and saying, you're from God, I clearly see it. And Jesus is saying, listen, the Spirit has to make you born again for you to see the kingdom. Nicodemus said to him, okay, how can I be born? How can a man be born when he's old? Right? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Again, you said this. Let's logically follow that to its conclusion, Jesus. No one can be born a second time. It does not make sense. Jesus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say this to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Our faith is spirit. It comes from God by his Spirit to us, who reveals to us the truths, and we, because we have been born again, we say, yeah, I believe in the Trinitarian God. Yes, I believe that Jesus was God and man. Yes, I believe that virgin birth happened. Yes, I believe the death and resurrection bodily of Jesus happened. That is not taught to you by human hands. That is spirit. Now, we tend to think Everything else about the Christian life should be logical and easily understood. And very few things are that way. Now, there are very easy things to understand in the gospel, right? What are the easy things? Here's here's an easy thing. What do you have to do to be a son of God? Repent and believe, right? Right? Call upon the name of the Lord. These are different ways of saying the same sorts of things. Those are easy. We don't understand how it happens. But that's easy to understand what we must do. Now, there are lots of things, though, that are less plain in Scripture. And one of these is this issue. Over and over in Scripture, we are told time and again that God does everything he wants to, right? This is the, the, a pivotal text for you to hold on to in thinking about what happens in this world is Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven, and he does all that he pleases. God always does everything he wants to do all the time. Nobody and nothing can ever, ever stand up to God. And this is the crux of it, right? This is the final place where this argument lands. Because if that's true... If no one can do anything apart from what God himself has said they should do, then we run into this logical problem. This is Romans chapter 9. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? 
By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Right? There's the nub of it, right? And Paul says, You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist the hand of God? Right? That's the question that we really run into in this. If God is all-powerful and does everything he pleases, isn't he guilty? And Paul says that question, right? Why does he still find fault with us? If he's doing everything he wants, and he hardens some and he saves others, why can he find fault with me? Who can resist his will? And the answer is no one can resist his will. And Paul's response through the Spirit is this. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to, our, say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God... Desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory even to whom he has called not from the Jews only but also from the Gentiles. And so the response of God to us when we get to the when we get to kind of the angry stage now of being upset that God would ever do something that we don't particularly think is fair, is to say, slow down there, kid. I am God, and you are not. And it's why I think one of the main reasons that God is Father, and that he gives fatherhood to us so that we can understand this, because there are a thousand times in raising children that you make them obey. And they don't know why, and they don't like it at all. But you know. I was having a conversation this week about it, and Sarah and I's first interaction with his parents, it's very common, but it's just funny that it just happens, you know. Covenant has just learned to crawl. Covenant, hi. You had just learned to crawl. And we had... You know, some cords over in the corner. And she wanted to get those cords, right? Wanted them bad. And so this is what happens. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to act this out as Covenant. Covenant crawls over, grabs the cords. Doesn't look at us, doesn't think about it, just wants them. We go over and we say, no, Covenant, no, no, no. Move her out of the way. Put some pillows up, right? We're compassionate parents. We don't. We don't swat the hands of our kids yet. They're barely seven months, eight months old, whatever she was. She's just barely crawling. You know, we're not violent. Crawls over, pulls the pillows down, gets the cords. <laughs> right? All right. Now we pull her away. I don't know how many times we did this before. 
Well, we do this several times. We play this little game. Well, finally, she goes over, and we just go. And it's the first time, right, that she has ever felt pain at the hands of her parents. Ever. Do you think she thought that this was a good thing? And no. She responded just like you think she responded. Not just with crying, but with, like, guilt-laced eyes. I thought you loved me. And you have now struck my hand, you beast. Now, of course, that quickly passes. You know this. And then what happens the next time? You all know. She crawls over towards it. And then she does. Right? Right? Knows what may happen to her should she continue. And then does she continue? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Crack, cry, two or three times, and then it's all over, right? She now knows, I don't do that, otherwise pain will be imminent, okay? Now, did she have any clue, any clue at all, why all of a sudden her hand was slapped? No, she just knew if I do this, my hand gets slapped. I don't know why my hand gets slapped, other than... It's, it's like a Pavlovian effect here. I do this and I get slapped. But she didn't know why we were saying no to her. She didn't know that she could be in danger from doing these things. Another instance of this. This was uh, a couple of years later. Well, we were fostering at the time. We had a little boy named Kagan. And we lived on a state highway, kind of like 231. A little bit less busy than 231. And, but still, you know... A little bit. Yeah. So we're out in the yard playing. And, you know, they take off running, you know, doing sorts of things. And it's a big yard. Well, then all of a sudden, he starts making a beeline. Right? I cannot catch him. It, right? He's far enough away, moving fast enough. If he wanted to make it to the road, he was going to make it to the road. And he wanted to make it to the road. So what happens? I can't run. Fast enough to catch him. So I, Kagan, stop! I mean, just the angriest, nasty, I mean, it was much angrier then, right? Stops. Because he knew that other times when I had raised my voice at him was not good. But he didn't know why I had yelled at him. Right? He didn't understand the danger that he could be in from a 55-mile-an-hour car barreling down on him. Now, let's take the analogy back out to God, who is our Father and who loves us. Loves us. We don't know how it works. We will probably never know how the eternal God makes decisions like this. He is a thousand million trillion times our superior in intellect and wisdom and thought. We don't know. We can't know. This was and continues to be a very difficult, difficult doctrine. It's not easy for us to cover our mouths. Right? We know this just from trying to put, right? I'm using, right? This is the actual mask for us is hard enough. But we have to be quiet before God. Right? 
And so, so we've kind of given you the, the big picture now. This is, this is the vast picture of the mystery of God coming down now to the mystery of God in predestination, election, hardening, mercy, that sort of thing. And we know then from lots of different places, right here in Romans 9, other places, that not all men everywhere are saved. Some are not. Not all will be in heaven. There is a real hell. And it is full of real people. Okay? So this is a fact we have to kind of lock into our minds. When God is talking through the scriptures, we have to know that not everyone is a Christian, nor has everyone always been a Christian. So lock that in. Okay. Now I'm going to give you some context to Ephesus. We did this months ago now, but I'm going to remind you of what was going on in Ephesus, right? The gospel came. Ephesus was largely Gentile. It was not a Jewish town. Largely Gentile. And there were some believers there who had heard um, the gospel that John the Baptist had been preaching, but hadn't yet heard all the good news of Jesus. And when they finally heard the good word, they were baptized, and they began babbling in tongues, right? Whatever that is, not the sermon for today. (laughs) Tongues came upon them, okay? They made such a ruckus in the in the synagogue where they were meeting that they got run out of the synagogue and Paul had to stop meeting with them in the synagogue. So there's clearly a Jewish-Gentile issue going on in Ephesus. The Jews do not want to have to deal with these Gentile pigs. Right? Us, mostly. And so they move to a different place to have these meetings to where they can talk about the gospel. And then crazy miracles are happening. This is the story of where even the handkerchiefs of Paul were taken around and people were healed. Unbelievable miracles happening in Ephesus. Okay? The seven sons of Sceva, right? These are Jewish exorcists who try to cast out a demon. And when they go in to cast out the demon, he says, I know Paul and I know Jesus, but I don't know you. And then the demon kicks their butts and sends them bloody and naked out of the house. That happened in Ephesus, okay? Also in Ephesus is when all these Gentiles who were practicing magic arts, right? These were sorcerers, sorceress, witches. They burned all their books when they became a Christian, and the total of the sum of the burning of their books came to 50,000 pieces of silver, That's a lot of money, right? It disrupted the business trades of Ephesus. So the silversmiths who made idols got a little angry because they lost enough income from Christians becoming Christians, or people becoming Christians, that they rioted. Two hours they sat and yelled, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And the town council had to come shut them down. 
there's clearly some problems in Ephesus. The Jews were not big fans of all the nonsense that these Gentile believers were causing. Because as you can imagine, if all the conversion to Christianity has caused a disruption to the business centers of the town, has caused riots, has caused um, miraculous things to be going on, that the Jews don't want them anywhere near them, you have a beginning of a problem. And then the letter of Ephesians, which comes shortly after this, deals with this in chapter 2. And he says, you know, Gentiles, remember at one time you were, you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by those who are the so-called circumcision. You were alienated from Christ, but now in Christ Jesus you were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made both Jew-Gentile Christians into one, tearing down the dividing wall of hostility that existed. And so Paul literally has to preach a sermon through his letter that says, Jew, Gentile, if you're a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, you may not fight anymore. Period. Stop. Right? Okay, so that's context. It's wild and crazy. The, the Gentile converts have caused problems because it was so unbelievably miraculous. And the Jews didn't like it. And so then you have just the context of First Timothy, this letter we've been reading through. You had false teachers who were misusing the law and going on and on about lineages. Now, who does that sound like? Jew or Gentile? That's the Jews, kind of big on where they're from, who their family name is, what tribe they're from, kind of big on the law. So, now you have context. 1 Timothy 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and those in high places. And so, I sort of hinted at this last week or the week before, when I talked about us making categories of people who are savable and not savable, right? Our neighbors who we just don't think are ever going to get it. We... We set them aside. We're like, eh, they're in a... We categorize people. And we think that those people, that kind of person, not going to become a Christian. And Paul's point here is that all people is this problem we have made. This guy, yeah, he could be a Christian. This guy, no way. Because of who they are. Kings in high places. Right? He's saying to the Jews... Pray for the pagan king. What? What now? Pray for the pagan? The pagan king? Paul, Paul, come here. You do know he's Roman, right? Not a Jew. Hates God. Yeah, pray for him. Give thanks for him. Because God desires all men to be saved. All men. Now, he doesn't mean... This super wide men, but he means people from everywhere. Now, the reason that we know that this is what's going on here in the text is verse 7. So he ends this whole thing about who should be saved, that God desires all to be saved. For this reason, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. 
I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And so Paul is saying, God desires the Gentiles to come to salvation, to the knowledge of the truth. He's saying the gospel is worldwide. So Mr. Jewish man, who has a problem with the law and lineages, and is dividing up the church in Ephesus and making problems, knock it off. My gospel goes everywhere, to the ends of the earth, to all peoples, everywhere. There is no categorical exclusion here. There is no except for them. Now, we do this here in the United States. It's harder, it's, it's more evident in other places. So you have a place like India. India is a class system. It's a caste system. You have the priests, you have the upper class, a couple of lower classes like businessmen and that sort of thing. Then you have the low class, and then you have below that the untouchables, the Dalits. Do you think that anyone in India who is of any of the upper classes thinks that anyone among the Dalit, the untouchables, deserve to hear the gospel, let alone believe it? No, they despise them. And that's the kind of thing that Paul is dealing with here. The Jews despised Gentiles. They hated the Samaritans, who were a half-Gentile. They really hated the, the full-on uncircumcision that existed out there. They don't get the gospel. We are God's chosen, not them. And we can develop the same kind of attitude in the church. We, we have it here. And that, you know, over there, not so much, right? And this is one of the things that the, the last 50 years of the social gospel, it's, it's really the only thing that they have touched on that's been helpful. They have said to the church, you don't care for those who are not like you. You don't like them. And you should. And right here's the reason. God's will is that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. His ransom was for all kinds of people all over the world of all different stripes. And you are not the perfect protector of who should be a Christian. I am not the perfect protector of who should be a Christian. This is supposed to make us broad-loving people without class, socioeconomic, you know, who sits on the wrong side of the tracks, what color your skin is. We are not those people. We are Christians. And Christians want all people to be saved. All of them. Right? This is the freeness of the gospel to us. Now, there's one more thing I want to talk about very briefly in the next couple minutes, and then we'll be done. In chapter 4 of it, 1 Timothy here, a similar phrase is used. For to this end we toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now, 
I believe this is talking about something different. Because it doesn't say he desires all men to be saved. He says he is the Savior of all people. And I think something different is going on there. I won't get into it too deep because it'll be whenever I go through this chapter 4. But just know that there, I think, what Paul means is that all people everywhere benefit from the cross. Christians make the world better. He saves the world. Right? If you think just back, would you rather be alive in AD 70 or now? Well, the reason you want to be alive now is, is not like because you live in the United States. It's because you're 17, you know, 1930 years removed from the tumult of all the things that hadn't happened yet because Christians hadn't worked yet in the world. The reason we have it so good today is because Christ saves people and people do good things. The reason so many hospitals and orphanages and that sort of thing exists are because people are saved by God who then in turn saves them. And that's not an eternal salvation because here in verse 10 it says, he's the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. That there is an eternal redemption that happens when you believe. But there is a general salvation that comes to the whole of the earth through Jesus. The whole earth benefits from the cross. Not eternally, all of them, but definitely just generally. And it's the same premise that God has repeatedly said throughout Scripture that he makes the rain to come on the just and the unjust. That God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. This is our good God. This is the goodness and the scope of God's gospel to the world. It's going out. And it will go everywhere. And in the end, before the throne, there will be people from every tribe and nation and language and tongue. And it will be Beautiful, because the lamb who was slain deserves the reward of his sufferings. He deserves them, and he will get them. All people. He loves them. We should love them. Let's stand this morning. We'll pray, and then we'll sing number 634, More Love to Thee.